Hi, everyone. Uh, it is my great pleasure to welcome Juno Diaz here. Of course, this is not his first time here at Wellesley College. Um, born in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic, he came to the U.S. with his family when he was six. He was raised in New Jersey and studied at Rutgers College and Cornell University. He is the author of Drown and the, Wonder, uh, the Brief Wanderer's Life of Oscar Wilde, which won numerous awards, including the National Book Critics Circle Award and the 2008 Pulitzer Prize. He is the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award in 2012, and his most recent work, This Is How You Lose Her, a collection of short stories, was a finalist for the National Book Award. Without further ado, please welcome Juno Diaz. Thank you. Very kind. Thank you all. Um, first, I wanted to thank First, I wanted to thank Wellesley for having me and for all the folks who arranged this to make this happen. Um, it was very kind of them. Um, second of all, um, I wanted to thank Goichi for his kind introduction. Um, it's sort of a, the, the missing part of the introduction, of course, is that um, your professor also happens to be a friend of mine. So, of course, it's been very formal, you know? <laughs> He can't say, that's my boy, uh, so, because, yes, um, he's a dear friend, so it's, it's very kind to, um, it's very good to be here with him, um, and I also wanted to thank all of y'all who made the time to come here, um, clearly space is tight, um, I appreciate the, the sort of, the, you know, the hand-to-hand -hand that uh, got you here, it's always Nice to see folks uh, coming to any kind of uh, artist event, um, you know, and uh, so it's nice to have you, you know. Um, I was going to read very briefly, and then um, me and uh, Koichi were going to chat for a little while, yeah, and then we were going to take some questions from you guys. I think that's the way it would work, yeah? Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm going to have to borrow my book from somebody, of course. I'll bring one. I think, it's okay, Koichi. I think somebody has it right here. It's oh. okay. Thank you. Very kind. I don't know why. Uh, it could, it's, mm, there are a number of ways of reading that omission. Um, perhaps... I sometimes seem to believe these things uh, are, you work on any text long enough, you kind of forget that you have to actually bring the damn thing, you know? <laughs> I think that's part of it, right? Um, so I was just going to read something very brief, yeah? Um, I've kind of uh, have a strange relationship to the short story, probably no stranger than anyone else's. Um, I think that uh, one's process with any literary form uh, kind of provokes both uh, a certain amount of uh, familiarity slash recognition and uh, a certain amount of estrangement. Yeah? And for me, of course, the estrangement uh, is the fact that uh, I tend to write stories with uh, a, a larger project in mind. I'm always sort of... Uh, trying to get one of those two-for-one deals, yeah? So I tend to be working on a story, um, trying to fit it into a larger structure, uh, which often means that 
completely normal, decent, wonderful stories that one could write, I have to kind of get rid of. Um, I have to sort of just cast aside because uh, the larger demand of the project, in this case, this book, required very specific stories at very specific registers to fit with each other um, in very kind of strange but particular ways, which meant that, uh, you know, I've never actually written a short story without the yoke of a larger project. You know, some folks just sit down and they write a story and they're just like, it's a fucking story. <laughs> yeah, I've never had that kind of freedom or perhaps that kind of, um, that kind of fear as well. Yeah. So I'm just going to read one and uh, again, something just rather small and then we will talk. All right. Where is this damn thing? The other thing is you think you've memorized stuff, but you have not. Okay. Cheater's Guide to Love. It's the name of the story, and uh, I'll just read the first sections. All right? Uh, second person account. As you guys know, second person is super dreary form. <laughs> yeah? Of course, more technically, it is a mode, super dreary mode. But, uh, uh, you know, even the most dreary of, dreary of us have our charm. So, something about it that I really liked. So, Cheater's Guide to Love, Year Zero. Your girl catches you cheating. Well, actually, she's your fiancé. But hey, in a bit, it so won't matter. She could have caught you with one sucia. She could have caught you with two but as you're a totally batshit guero who didn't ever empty his email trash can, she caught you with 50. Sure, over a six-year period, but still, 50 fucking girls? God damn. Maybe if you had been engaged to a super open-minded Blanquita, you could have survived it. But you are not engaged to a super open-minded Blanquita. Your girl is a badass from Salcedo who doesn't believe in open anything. In fact, the one thing that she warned you about that she swore that she would never forgive was cheating. I will put a machete in you, she promised. And of course you swore you wouldn't do it. You swore you wouldn't, you swore you wouldn't, and you did. She'll stick around for a few months because you had dated for a long, long time. Because you went through much together, her father's death, your tenure madness, her bar exam, and because love, real love, is not so easily shed. Over a tortured six-month period, you will fly to the DR, to Mexico, to New Zealand. You will walk the beach where they filmed the piano, something she'd always wanted to do, and now in penitent desperation, you give it to her. She is immensely sad on that beach, and she walks up and down the shining sand alone, bare feet in the freezing water, and when you try to hug her, she says, don't. 
She stares at the rocks jutting out of the water, the wind taking her hair straight back. On the ride to the hotel, up through those wild steeps, you pick up a pair of hitchhikers, a couple so mixed, it is ridiculous and so giddy with love, you almost throw them out the fucking car. <laughs> she says nothing. Later in the hotel, she will cry. You try every trick in the book to keep her. You write her letters. You drive her to work. You quote Neruda. <laughs> you compose a mass email disowning all of your sucias. You block their emails. You change your phone number. You stop drinking. You stop smoking. You claim you're a sex addict. You start attending meetings. You blame your father. You blame your mother. You blame the patriarchy. You blame Santo Domingo. You find a therapist. You cancel Facebook. You give her the passwords to all of your accounts. You start taking salsa classes like you always swore you would. You claim that you were sick. You claim that you were weak. It was the book. It was the pressure. And every hour, like clockwork, you say that you are so, so sorry. You try it all, but one day she will simply sit up in bed and say, no more. Yeah. And you will have to move out of the Harlem apartment that the two of you have shared. You consider not going. You consider a squat protest. In fact, you say you won't go, but in the end, you do. For a while, you haunt the city like a two-bit ball player dreaming of a call-up. You phone her every day and leave messages which she doesn't answer. You write her long, sensitive e letters which she returns unopened. You even show up at her apartment at odd hours and at her job downtown until finally her little sister calls you, the one who was always on your side, and she makes it plain. If you try to contact my sister again, she's going to put a restraining order on you. For some Negroes, that wouldn't mean shit. But you ain't that kind of Negro. You stop. You move back to Boston. You never see her again. Okay. I think we should stop there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, God, I'm just trying to waste time. That was like, what, six minutes, you guys? Not, somebody said not even? Come on, man. That's like super not. You know what they always say in those talk shows? Talk to yourself like it was a six-year-old child. That's not very encouraging. Not even. All right, motherfuckers. We'll see what's up. Okay, so we'll just do one other piece. Yeah. I keep having these long pregnant pauses, which is just fucking time wasting. So let's try another piece, yeah? Older folks, you know the deal. Yeah, which means that anybody who's been around long enough knows that you always make one of these fucking mistakes in your life, which is you're fighting with your partner. 
chances are you or the partner is on your fucking way out and you decide to go on a vacation with them. <laughs> I don't know, no one, just me. <laughs> How about, I know Koichi, brother, come on, man. <laughs> we all know. <laughs> Motherfuckers are sleeping if you guys don't know what's up. So, I think the question is though, Young people, how many of you have not done this yet? Raise your hand. Most of you are like broke or haven't, you know. <laughs> Shit, I remember. Yeah. The funny thing is, it will happen. And no matter what people tell you, you will fucking go. All right? So that's, this story was written in the honor of that, what we would call standard stupidity. And uh, we'll just start it like this. It's called The Sun, the Moon, the Stars. We're only going to read a small piece of it, okay? We'll read the opening and then just another chunk. The Sun, the Moon, the Stars. I am not a bad guy. I know how that sounds, defensive and unscrupulous, but it is true. I'm like everybody else, weak Full of mistakes, but basically good. Magdalena disagrees, though. She considers me a typical Dominican man, a sucio, an asshole. Because you see, many months ago, when Magda was still my girl, when I didn't have to be careful about almost anything, I cheated on her with this chick who had tons of 80s freestyle hair. Didn't tell Magda about it either. You know how that is. A smelly bone like that better off buried in the backyard of your life. Magda only found out because homegirl wrote her a fucking letter. And that letter had details. Shit you wouldn't even tell your boys drunk. The thing is, that particular bit of stupidity had been over for months. Me and Magda were on an upswing. We weren't as distant as we'd been the winter that I was cheating. The freeze was over. She was coming over to my place, and instead of us hanging out with my knucklehead boys, me smoking and her bored out of her skull, we were seeing movies, driving out different places to eat. We even caught a play at the Crossroads Theater, and I took her picture with some big wig black playwrights, pictures where she's smiling so much you would think her wide-ass mouth was going to unhinge. We were a couple again, visiting each other's families on the weekends, eating breakfast at diners, going to the library together. A nice rhythm we had going. But then the letter hits like a Star Trek grenade and detonates everything past, present, and future. And suddenly, her folks want to kill me. It doesn't matter that I help them with their taxes two years running or that I mow their lawn. Her father, who used to treat me like his hijo, calls me an asshole on the phone. Sounds like he's strangling himself with the cord. <laughs> you no deserve I speak to you in Spanish, he says. And I see one of Magda's girls at the Woodbridge Mall, Clarabelle, the Equatoriana with the biology degree and the chinita eyes, and she treats me like I ate somebody's favorite fucking kid. You don't even want to hear how it went down with Magda. Like a five-train collision. She threw Cassandra's letter at me, and then she sat down on the curb and started hyperventilating. Oh, God, she wailed. Oh, 
my God, this is when my boys claim they would have pulled a total fucking denial. Cassandra who? But I was too sick to even try that shit. I sat next to, Matt, I sat next to Cassandra, grabbed her flailing arms, and said some dumb shit like, you have to listen to me, Magda, or you won't understand. So, this kid gets caught cheating, yeah? And him and his girl got this trip to the Dominican Republic they planned together. And uh, she, of course, is like, fuck you. And we join him. Yeah. We're trying to work it out. Magda's girlfriends, the sorest losers on the planet, advised her to take this trip and then never to speak to me again. <laughs> she, of course, told me this shit because she couldn't tell me, she couldn't stop herself from telling me everything she was thinking. How do you feel about that suggestion? I asked her. She shrugged. It's an idea. <laughs> Even my boys were like, nigga. It sounds like you're wasting a whole lot of loot on some bullshit. But I really thought this would be good for us. Deep down where my boys don't know me, I'm an optimist. And I thought me and Magda on the island, what couldn't this cure? Let me confess. I love Santo Domingo. I love coming to home to the guys in the blazers trying to push little cups of brugal into my hands. I love the plane landing, everybody clapping when the wheels kiss the runway. I love the fact that I'm the only nigga on board without a Cuban link or a flapjack of makeup on my face. I love the redhead woman on the way to meet the daughter she hasn't seen in 11 years, the gifts she holds on her lap like the bones of a saint. Miha has tetas now, the woman whispers. The last time I saw her, she could barely speak in sentences. And now she's a woman. Imaginate. I love the bags my mother packs, shit for relatives and something for Magda, a gift. You give this to her no matter what happens. If this was another kind of story, I would tell you about the sea. What it looks like after it's been forced into a sky through a blowhole, and how when I'm driving in from the airport and see it like this, like shredded silver, I know I'm back for real. And I would tell you about how many poor motherfuckers there are. More albinos, more cross-eyed niggers, more tigres than you will ever see. And I would tell you about the traffic, the entire history of 20th century automobiles, stretching across every flat stretch of ground, a cosmology of battered cars, battered motorcycles, battered trucks, and battered buses, and an equal number of repair shops run by any fool with a wrench. And I would tell you about our shanties and our no-running water faucets and the sambos on our billboards and the fact that my family home comes equipped with the ever-reliable latrine. And I would tell you about my abuelo and his campo hands and how unhappy he is that I am not sticking around longer. And I would tell you about the street where I was born, Calle 21, how it hasn't decided yet if it wants to be a slum or not, and how it has been in this state of indecision for years. But that would make this another kind of story, and I'm having enough trouble with this one as it is. 
You'll have to take my word for it. Santo Domingo is Santo Domingo. Let's pretend we all know what goes on there. Okay, and that's it. We'll leave it there. Very kind. All right, well, thank you so much for the reading. Um, I'm going to ask him a couple questions just to start um, a conversation. And then we're going to open up to questions from the audience. Um, so many people have pointed out the, the linguistic hybridity in your work, um, not just between Spanish and English, but, uh, but also um, between you know, slang and literary references, um, simplicity and, and you know, complicated um, sentences. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your own experience as a child learning English and how that experience sort of um, contributed to the formation of your linguistic hybridity. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I almost forgot to ask. Uh, I, I, I always get this thing, and I, I kind of wanted to make sure. I know there's people listening to this in the other room, so I want to thank them. And, uh, you know, you guys are like, Real troopers, man. Uh, and I guess the two things I wanted to ask. First of all, is there immigrants here at all? Yeah, like three of y'all. One of them's right up fucking front. That's great. A couple over there. You're pointing at people. What's up? How about folks from the Caribbean? Are there folks from the Caribbean here? Again, they're kind of over here. What's up, guys? What's up? And folks from the Dominican Republic? Anybody? Yo, Wellesley's got a fucking recruit. What's going on? I feel like I'm getting a distorted picture. A friend of mine, she always says, yeah, you bring out all the colored folks. So I'm sure this picture is incredibly distorted. So Wellesley, come on. Bring up your A-game. I guess I bring this up because anyone who's gone through an immigration experience similar to mine, which in no way is universal... One of the things that you become very aware of is you become very aware of how obsessed people are with pure linguistic registers. Another way of saying it is that um, I think no one is more aware of, you know, the sort of the dream of idiomatic purity the way a immigrant can be. And so I was very aware that the kind of demotic English that I was sort of learning um, in my neighborhood was not the English of the bureaucratic, institutional, academic English which I was being asked to deploy at the schools. Now, guys, if you think I kind of was able to articulate it in this way when I was seven, eight, nine, that's absurd. But I was incredibly clear on it. You don't need sort of language to be clear on stuff. You know, that's kind of one of the disturbing or promising things about human nature in some ways. Um, and so one of the things that happened with me was that um, I sort of, like most of us, but I think in a much more conscious way, because my language acquisition happened when I could remember, mm -hmm. where most people's language acquisition doesn't happen when they can remember. You know, most people don't remember primary language acquisition. You know, and so one of the things that happens with me is that, quote unquote, primary language acquisition happens in memory. Mm -hmm. And um, literacy happens in memory. And I became very, 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 very conscious of how different groups respond to what we would call sort of, you know, linguistic hybridity. Mm -hmm. 
And for me, you know, as a Dominican kid growing up, what was hilarious was that there was both in the three kind of, if I would say the three kind of axes, axes, how do we pronounce this? Axes. Motherfuckers are like, I don't know. <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah, help a brother out. So, yeah, so... What was so fascinating for me was that, you know, across one, all sorts of languages weren't permitted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was like in school and people were like, do not speak Spanish ever. I mean, this was like 1974 plus. This wasn't like any kind of enlightened. This wasn't Berkeley 2012. Yeah. I mean, their idea of sort of helping us out was I was put into like, um, special ed because I spoke Spanish for no other reason and I was given like a language tutor it's basically once a week they would come and they would be like something is wrong with you it's called Spanish we'll like cure you of that <laughs> and then of course I grew up in a kind of a, a mixed community but predominantly sort of the baseline was African-American mostly folks who had moved up from the Carolinas who had moved up to New Jersey and this was another place where like there was a lot of linguistic patrolling you know, if people think, like, poor folks are, like, not nightmarish around this, they're crazy. And then, of course, there was the, the sort of Spanish that my mother fantasized about, which was this kind of upper-class Spanish, which she herself had no access to deploy. You know, she had no place to deploy it, but she kind of demanded that we somehow partook in it or were emblematic of it. Mm-hmm. And all of these things, and I know this is kind of a long way of saying it, but all of these things mm-hmm. created in me very much an awareness of how obsessed people are with using language Mm -hmm. to make moral judgments about character. It's extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And none of the groups that had, you know, were like important to my upbringing um, were in any way excused from this kind of repressive violence. And one of the things that I began when I began to think about Junior was that my kind of... my kind of protagonist, the, the writer, alter ego of the three books, is that I knew that Junior was a child of the dictatorship. And that one of the things that I was going to sort of put as a primary feature of Junior is that the point of him is that when he writes, it's the one place where he disobeys all of these prohibitions. And that was sort of the beginning of his character. And at the beginning of his character is this question of linguistic hybridity, mm-hmm. you know, in the sense of like, how can we deploy our simul- how can we deploy our multiple selves simultaneously? Junior was an attempt to practice that. Mm-hmm. You know? mm. But just a small little caveat, I think that part of the thing is is that by learning pure linguistic forms, even though it kind of can be a violence. Um, it made me super awesome at breaking it. So many of my students don't want to learn fucking grammar. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I'm just like, really? If you don't, if you don't want to learn grammar, as you know, there's a student out there who wants to learn grammar and is going to fuck you up. Thank you. Great. Um, so you... You mentioned Junior, so I want to kind of go back to his character. So for those who are familiar with his work, um, we, we've seen him for, for a while now. <laughs> we saw him when he was uh, nine-year-old in Drone. 
And then uh, he's one of the characters in his novel, The Grief Founder of Life of Oscar Wilde. And then you return to his uh, junior in your, um, the, uh, This Is How You Lose Her. So what are some of the challenges and benefits of describing someone you've developed for so long? Yeah, well, his project was always this kind of the, the kind of lower, if we look at it closely, the, the idea that a bunch of stories would work together to form a larger kind of a book project. Mm -hmm. The idea was that each of the books is a chapter for a larger novel mm -hmm. about Junior's life. The idea was that if I lived long enough, because that's literally I've got to live long, how slow I write, you know, I would write six of these things and they would be the six chapters and they would form actually a book and mm -hmm. it would make a lot of sense then. And so the idea was I had to pick a character and had to organize a character that would be generative. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that helps is to sort of kind of organize your, your character, your protagonist, kind of his deep structures in a way that generates a lot of a lot of creativity. Mm -hmm. You know, the problem with Junior is that he's, for me, there's a characterological problem with writing him, which is simply that he doesn't talk about the stuff that really matters. Mm -hmm. He's incredibly um, elliptical. Mm -hmm. um, he just doesn't do it. He is the, mm -hmm. he would never write a memoir. Mm -hmm. He is the opposite of the contemporary um, confessional impulse. Junior actually goes out of his way to play down his traumas mm -hmm. and to erase them and to hide them mm -hmm. from plain sight. Yeah. And of course, the other difficulties when you have a kind of longitudinal project mm -hmm. is that you fucking can't stand the motherfucker. Yeah. You know, <laughs> basically after, you know, for me, it's been, God, it's been almost 20 years. It's, yeah. you're, just, you're just tired of this fucking kid. So, you know, and part of it is you've got to have endurance. And what does he tell us about the idea of Dominicanness. You know, you, you always talk about, you know, the Dominican Republic, the R, Santo Domingo specifically. Um, what, what does he tell us about the idea, the, the Dominican identity? I'm not sure if he specifically addresses, like, I'm not sure that, um, I think Junior spends a lot of time, you guys know the difference between uh, identifying and defining, right? I mean, this is one of those dialectical things. We spend a lot, we mm -hmm. can identify a whole bunch of crap that we can't define, you know? And the idea is, is that, for example, national identities, we can identify them, but try to define them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, any kind of definition is going to fail to cover the people. And so, Junior kind of lives in a world where one can identify Dominicanness, mm -hmm. but can never be defined. Mm -hmm. And so, I think what's interesting about Junior's concepts is that he approaches his ideas around Dominican-basedness based on a couple of sort of fundamental starting points. One is the, the long-term damage of the, of the Trujillo dictatorship, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, to the ways that coloniality have shaped uh, African diasporic identity, mm -hmm. but more, I think, closely the way that the Dominican Republic expresses those deformities within African diasporic identity, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that Junior spends a lot of time talking about white supremacy across a number of different platforms, whether it's Latino white supremacy, mm -hmm. white supremacy within the African diasporic community, white supremacy among the white community, um, you know, and the way that white supremacy impacts all sorts of basic things mm -hmm. like desire, affect, 
you know, your relationship to history. Mm -hmm. And I think that he attempts to get at some of these things because in a way, his identity falls in line with uh, a kind of mm -hmm. that hypercharged, um, consistently political identity that has been produced by African-American experience in the U.S. And there's also a political identity that gets produced in the Caribbean. And Junior, in some ways, has his, his kind of body in both places. And I think mm -hmm. he's trying to talk about a lot of those things. Mm -hmm. But again, as a way to have a larger conversation. His right. idea of Dominicanness is that he has no idea what the fuck it is. Mm -hmm. But it seems to have a lot of fucking problems. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be really good at surviving shit. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, he's really kind of thinks about both of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we can also see that in the character of Oscar in the novel um, and their interaction with um, other characters, um, especially women, right? Yeah, and you know, and, and just, but even the, this idea that Junior and Oscar rotate around mm -hmm. and we get in our communities all the time, the idea of like authenticity, the mm -hmm. idea of purity. Mm -hmm. I mean, yo, African diasporic people, everywhere I go, that's, uh, that's, uh, that is fucking like, a PhD level obsession. <laughs> People are super obsessed. And again, in the Dominican Republic, it gets sort of folded back into this other kind of political register mm -hmm. where the Dominican Republic is always sort of patrolling. So there's always this question in Santo Domingo, are you Dominican? And I don't know if you've ever seen that, if you've read that kind of, that, that thing of that epistemological doubt called ergo conquiro. You know, Nelson Torres Maldonado speaks of it. And ergo conquido is like this idea that comes out of coloniality, mm. which is that I doubt you are human because you are not white. And I think that ergo conquido is something that's the reason, for example, people are like, Obama, we don't think he's American. That's an expression of ergo conquido. American really means human in this context. Mm -hmm. And so ergo conquido finds its expression in a lot of different places. And I think of the Dominican Republic, it's really telling with this concept of Santo Domingo and Haiti, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where what is not human is Haitian, and also Dominicans, mm -hmm. because Dominicans themselves are always patrolling each other. There's, if you only have to spend an hour in Santo Domingo for someone to ask the most Dominican person of the world and to be like, you're a Dominican? <laughs> and of course, this doubt gets institutionalized by a dictatorship that mm -hmm. used the question of, are you Dominican, as a way to discipline mm. citizens. The question of, are you Dominican, spent, the Dominican Republic spent 31 years with a dictatorship using that question to sort of create those who would be exterminated and those who didn't, mm -hmm. who wouldn't be. And mm -hmm. Dominicans, in some ways, picked that up. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I guess you and your, in some ways, he talks mm. a lot about this crap, you know? Mm. Well, maybe just to change uh, the focus a little bit, um, you, you've said uh, something about the relationship between um, short story writing and novel writing. Um, how do you approach them differently? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, again, everyone has their sort of like, um, you know, we all have our kind of like our, our way of conceptualizing our praxis. So this is in some ways just... This is like my local ethos, and it, I don't know if it bear, has any bearing to anyone else, but I think for me, certainly my sense of the way I write short stories, the kind of traditional short stories I write, what sort of ends up happening is that because I can kind of keep every single word of the short story in my memory, I rely a lot less on my unconscious, you know? 
I, in some ways, can sort of rely a lot more on my craft, the short story, you know. Short stories also have the problem that they can be perfect, you know, and that is kind of a problem. They can be perfect. Mm -hmm. There are perfect stories. They just are. Mm -hmm. And it's what happens with something that's in some ways a miniature, you know. Now, of course, everything has a flaw. We're in a flawed mm -hmm. universe, but I think... There's stories for each of us that we consider perfect stories. On the other hand, a novel, you can't keep every word of it in your memory. Hmm. A novel, most of the heavy work of a novel, like, say, a dissertation, like, say, a monograph, most mm -hmm. of the heavy work is being done by your unconscious because your mind can't keep the whole thing. And so your unconscious is doing a lot of work of fitting it together mm -hmm. and directing you. And it requires two entirely different mindsets. One where you have to sort of trust more in your mm -hmm. craft, another one where you have to trust more in your unconscious, mm -hmm. you know. And for me, again, short stories are so much about the traditional what you mm -hmm. leave out, and novels are sort of trying to, like, fire to put everything in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and as I said, the opposite of short stories is novels can never be perfect. Mm -hmm. And so it's hilarious because a lot of control freaks are interested in writing. And it's really, really fucking funny because, no, it's actually kind of hilarious. Like, I know that because once they start writing a novel, everything that brings them to their writing works against them. Mm. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, <laughs> and I also know that you are, in addition to being a great writer, you are a voracious reader. Um, and as a literary critic myself, I, I know that there's a profoundly intertwined relationship between writing and reading. And as your friend and as your student, of course, I, I just have to ask this question. I mean, I'm, I know there's so many questions out there, but I want to finish you know, our conversation with this question. Um, how do you see uh, the relationship between reading, the reading and the writing? Well, I mean, again, everyone sort of orients themselves around sort of how you work in this field. Um, listen, what I've noticed is that there's a contemporary tendency. Is it universal? No. There's a contemporary tendency. Remember, I did not say it was universal. <laughs> yeah? But there is a contemporary tendency of a division between writers and readers. Never in my awareness of the history of the writing profession in sort of the Western Hemisphere has there been this sort of super high-scale professionalization of writers. Writers spend a lot of time with other writers. Historically, this never happened. In many ways, this is all about the bureaucratization of writing. This is all about the professionalization of writing. Mm -hmm. This is all about sort of figuring out how to capture writers as a market identity. Mm -hmm. And so that I myself have never, I do not partake in that. That's not the way I identify myself. I went to AWP once because I was forced to. A friend <laughs> had promised to do an event with them. I've never been to AWP. I kind of avoid anything where it's all just writers hanging out because it distorts mm. what's really, for me, in my concept, it distorts the reality mm -hmm. is that writing is fundamentally, for me, it's fundamentally um, in relationship to reading mm. and that my true collective is readers, not other writers. 
And I think that it's very, very strange because one of the things that ends up happening is that I can almost immediately identify. It's like a weird FBI profiler. I can immediately identify a writer who's oriented towards writers. It takes about one second, you guys. It takes about one fucking second. It is so starkly obvious versus writers who are oriented towards readers. You know? I mean, and I could just give you just a small description of this without going into too much, you know, too much thesis level sort of detail. Well, think about it. If you're oriented towards other writers, are you expecting great generosity? <laughs> I mean, reading isn't competitive. Mm -hmm. I've never met writer. I've yet. Are you, maybe there are out there, like in third grade. I read another one. No, but <laughs> in general, readers are not competitive. In general, readers try to convince a reader not to like a book they like. Mm. Try to disabuse a reader of mm -hmm. their cathexis with a text. You can't fucking do it. Mm. There is no knife. There is no molecular blade. There's no progressive edge sharp enough for you to work your way between the reader and mm -hmm. their cathexis with a book. Mm -hmm. That's the world I write for. Because I know what a reader brings to a text, and therefore I write knowing that this is the person who's going to participate with me in the writing this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Which means, of course, when you write for writers, and believe me, spend enough time with writers, you're writing for writers. Mm -hmm. There's no way that that doesn't crowd your imaginary. Mm -hmm. You generally expect people to be looking for excuses not to read you. Mm -hmm. Where my idea is that my readers, in my mind, are looking for excuses to cover up my mistakes. Hmm. And one, I think, proceeds from a far more, more generous view of how we're interfacing, and another one is a far more critical view. Mm -hmm. One is a workshop versus, say, your library. Hmm. And I think that this, for me, really mm -hmm. matters, and this, for me, is sort of something that I've only identified because I feel so like an alien around this hmm. new age writer. So many of the young writers and even writers my age, I'm like, I spend two minutes with them. I like, it's like they poison me. <laughs> and I don't, they don't mean anything by it, but they just carry a poisonous sort of mm -hmm. ideation, a poisonous ethic, which is, you know, they've acquired. It's mm -hmm. not their fault. But I, I'm like, I don't want anything to do with that. Right. I mean, uh -huh. it's definitely easier. <laughs> it's definitely easier to share what you're reading than what you're writing, uh, I, I'm, I, I bet. So... Maybe, um, do you mind sharing what you're reading? I won't ask you about what you're writing about right now. So I think it's personal because you know there's plenty of people who have no problems sharing what they're fucking writing. There's always that person who's like, hey, could you read something of mine? It's 700 pages long. <laughs> yeah. I think this, this is personal. There's stuff that you know, some of us are more reticent, others are not. Um, certainly, I mean, I'm kind of reading a whole bunch of stuff. I'm reading... Uh, I can't ever pronounce her name. Sarah Gwenlian? Is it Gwenlian? Cult TV. Great book. Edited volume. Super duper. You know? Um, I'm reading a bunch of novels for the Pulitzer Prize. We have to judge for next year. So I'm reading a bunch of them. I wish I could tell you what they are, but I can't. <laughs> you know? 
but they're really good. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Great. Um, well, maybe we could uh, have some questions from the, from the audience. Thank you, Koichi. You're a wonderful man. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Um, this isn't related to anything that you've discussed already. I'm interested in, to put it frankly, why you teach at MIT. Mm. So, <laughs> and that's not coming from, you know, my Wells Women perspective. I'm just interested in, you know, MIT is an, it's a school for engineers. Um, I don't know if MIT has like an astonishing creative writing program, but um, yeah. So basically, why do you teach at MIT as opposed to somewhere that does have? I think Michigan has like some advanced. We already said you don't like that. Um, so, <laughs> so why MIT as opposed to like you know Wellesley or <laughs> somewhere else? But actually, yeah. Well, no, question. I think. I think it's a very fair question. I mean, listen, part of it has to do, and I know this is kind of a weird thing, guys. The whole shit about jobs is, guys, if you don't like your job, that could be a serious fucking problem. <laughs> like, I'm not kidding. Because if you don't like your partner, guess what? Get fucking rid of them. You know? No, I mean it. Like, one way or the other, you're going to figure it out. But your job is a different situation because you know how they got this kind of new economy these days. <laughs> You leave your job, you suddenly find yourself not employed for 11 years. I mean, they've really put the squeeze on us and they're trying to convince us it's our problem and not capitalism problem, you know? And so one of the things that for me is interesting about a place like MIT is that you must understand, I kind of have this, this a couple of things as an artist is A, you're looking for a place that preserves your time to do art. I mean, I gotta tell you the job is is your second, it's kind of your hobby. Where, I, I, you know, you don't want to be fucked up, but like my job is I'm an artist, I'm a writer, I'm looking for as much fucking time to write as possible. The thing with MIT is that MIT preserves an enormous amount of time. Now, with that said, you know what I was saying earlier about liking your job? MIT is also like kind of a fucking cool place to work. <laughs> you know, and again, it's not as if elite institutions don't all suffer the same problem. I mean, elite institutions have a lot of problems with white supremacy. They have a lot of problems with gender shit. They've got a lot of problems with fucking the way they treat our fucking gay, lesbian, bisexual, T, Q, etc. You know? But no, I mean, that's important. And, you know, we all draw the line. We're like, oh, well, the racism at Wellesley's not as bad as the racism at MIT. We all sort of have, like, these bottom lines. We're all like, well, you know, I'll draw the line here. But all of us are functioning in the same world, as long as you're in the US, more or less. And if you're in a university level, you know, there's select colleges and there's everybody else. And I gotta tell you, it's a place that provides, it's a place that, um, strangely enough, gives me, you know, the privilege that it gives me, allows me to do my work. The second thing is, is that I myself don't think that my role for teaching my art is teleological. I mean, I must, I, I don't know, I'm not saying this, but I, I must disabuse people. Like, guys, I do not teach creative writing for fucking creative writers. I think sometimes people get it confused. Even my fellow faculty members get it confused. <laughs> I don't teach for the one special student who wants to be a writer. That's fucking nonsense. 
That's the kind of bullshit favoritism that I saw in all my classes when I was an undergraduate and that used to annoy me. I teach creative writing because I believe profoundly that this artistic practice is an important part of some a person's, what I would call their classical education. And I think that engineers make explicit what is present in the rest of the society. The rest of the society thinks that what I do as an artist is nonsense, basically frivolous or irrelevant. And I don't want to hide in a place where they're like, oh, here we love it. I like the battle. I like that that shit's explicit at MIT. I like that I'm like, every time I convince a bunch of MIT folks that this is important, that this matters, that you don't have to be a writer to love this form of expression, this form of exploration, that you don't have to be professional in this. I feel like I have made an important gain. Not everybody could teach at different institutions. And I gotta tell you, I've found in 10 years that the one thing about MIT that has been useful for me is that I could teach there, A, because I'm fucking nuts, which you shouldn't underestimate <laughs> for teaching, and B, because I really get a thrill out of being wrong all the time. Like, I know most people don't like being wrong. No, I mean it. I dated a bunch of people. <laughs> and, and people don't like being wrong, y'all. And they especially don't like being wrong in public. But I don't give a fuck. Like, profoundly, at a deep level, if you don't like a 13-year-old student blowing your shit up in class, you can't teach at MIT. <laughs> and I happen to be okay with that shit. In fact, I kind of find it interesting. And so these are a number of reasons why I think I'm there, you know? My recognition always is that I've done different kinds of jobs for different periods of time. And so this period too will end. I know me, I know me, and I know how much I love my working poor background and how much I feel that I owe people, et cetera, et cetera. You end up in different places. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> what else, guys? Madame. Um, could you describe your writing? <clears throat> could you describe your writing routine? Yeah, um, my writing routine. <laughs> I like my partner. My partner's in the audience. She's like, his fucking writing routine. <laughs> she writes like, you know, a book a year. She's like, she's like this motherfucker's lazy. <laughs> Yeah, you know, my deal is I, I try to work in the mornings. I try to work early, and I try to work in the mornings. Um, other people have got different techniques, you know? Um, the thing with me is that it's, I'm like that really big old boulder. It takes forever and a ton of energy to get going. So it takes me like, guys, it'll take me like 11 years to get any momentum. <laughs> but when I get momentum, I will fucking buffalo stance fuck you up. Like. <laughs> For real. So usually for the first 99% of the project, I'm like weak as beans, you know? But then I, I, you know, I come with it. So mornings always, early. I try to read. This, my, my partner would never comment on this. I fucking read a lot. She's fucking a nerd, but I'm like a five nerd, you know? <laughs> so I figure as long as I'm reading, I feel like I'm doing work too. 
go. Madame. Wait. Hi, I'm Louisa Sophia. Um, I was wondering how has New Brunswick impacted, like, helped you and your experience in Jersey more wide, more widely? I'm from New Brunswick. Checking the time. So. Um, New Brunswick. Well, you know New Brunswick was where I went to school, yeah? yeah. So that's my, that's my alma mater. Again, it depends on what your relationship to college is, you know? Some of you, you go to college and the place ain't great for you. And it's not always the college, right? Sometimes you're not in a good space. You know, sometimes you're just, it's, and, I mean, and believe me, sometimes some of us come with baggage from home that make being in a new place difficult. You know, if you come from that kind of world where I felt like I started college with my entire family hanging off me, you know, and some of us are like that as well. For me, college, Rutgers was, uh, Rutgers was elemental because, again, in this case, we must understand the way that masculinity worked in the late 80s and early 90s in the neighborhoods that I grew up in. Yeah, I mean, I spent my entire life feeling unsafe in a different way than my sisters. My sisters spent their entire time feeling unsafe in ways, now I'm not saying universal, most of it was like, how can I stop my relatives and my neighbors from raping me? Yeah. And how can I, like, stop myself from, you know, going down the lane of love is everything and suddenly getting a shit beat out of me by someone who I think is, loves me? Now, my masculine privilege kept me from all of that. Instead, I spent my entire time thinking every time I stepped out the door is, who's going to stab and shoot me? Now, it's not because I'm trying to kind of, like, sensationalize being poor, but it's the reality. If you grow up poor and masculine in a certain background, I mean, give me a fucking break. I got... Most of my friends, we all got scars all over our bodies and not from falling out of trees, you know? And so the thing about college for me is that no matter how difficult college was, how fucked up the white people are, because, yo, white people in college, if you're a poor kid of color, what is fucking wrong with them? <laughs> like, what is wrong with white people? And then what is wrong with self-hating people of color? I couldn't decide who was fucking crazier. I mean, I knew I was nuts, but I went into this community totally expecting utopia. Instead, I was like being torn to pieces on both sides, you know. The people of color who are like, I've never encountered racism. <laughs> That's about as, that is about as useful to a conversation as a man saying, well, I've never encountered rape, so therefore... That disqualifies any conversation about rape. Or in fact, it disqualifies, you know? And so, um, you know, despite that, it was the one first place that I felt safe in a long time. And I fucking went at it, yo. I like went at it. I didn't know how long it was gonna last, you know? And so college for me still is, uh, despite the fact that I worked my way through school, like when you could still do that, you know, it's true. true. It's true. I mean, guys, I would never, I could not have gone to college now. You could work your way through Rutgers and still come off with, like I did, like with a 3 7. I was like, you, know, you ain't going to work your way through Rutgers now, period. And you certainly wouldn't get no 3 7. You know? 
And so it meant a lot to me. I think it's still, I still have dreams all the time. I know the dream is wonderful when it is set in New Brunswick, you guys. <laughs> I'm not kidding. When I'm on Livingston, when I'm on Joyce Kilmer, when I'm on George Street, yeah, guys, I'm like, this is going to be a great dream. Bad stuff never happens to me in Rutgers dreams. <laughs> Thank you. Is there questions in the back, too? There's one there. Is there anybody in the back, the pillar people? <laughs> we'll take this one here. There. But, but the pillar people, just in case. Go ahead, madam. Um, I was just wondering if you have thought about or would consider writing a book um, from a female perspective. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. I ever thought about writing a book from a female perspective. The thing with me is that I can't help the game. Which is what I mean by that is that what is more useful? I always think of what's more useful. What's the most useful literary, literary intervention? For me to write a book from a female perspective or for me to write a book that's clearly from a male persona writing about a female perspective. Because it allows me kind of the double thing. It allows me not only to approach a female perspective but comment on what are the uses that patriarchy, that heteronormative patriarchy has for pantomiming or ventriloquizing women's voices? You know? So I can both be incriminated in the practice, but also crack it open more usefully, too. And so that's the thing I've done. So, for example, half of The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde is from a woman's perspective but it's filtered through a male subjectivity. And so you get the two, you know? It, it's kind of helpful that way. And again, it's not because I want to kind of escape the slam. You get the slam anyway, the criticism. But because you get more work done. There's a lot more, I think, from my sense, is much more work. Hopefully my next book will be even more clearly from uh, have a woman protagonist. I mean, I'm trying to write a book about the end of the world and about, like, basically a little Dominican Wonder Woman, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, because all, like, I just always wanted to write a book about, you know, like what's really strange is Wonder Woman as a kind of, as, as an, we understand Wonder Woman as an icon, but you know, like there's almost no really central narratives for Wonder Woman. In other words, like I could come up with a couple of central narratives for Batman. I could come up with a couple of central narratives for Superman. A lot of kind of characters have central narratives, but it's so fascinating how Wonder Woman is mostly image and is evacuated of really good narratives. And so I'm not saying that I'm going to do one, but I just think that it's, I want to try to have a story. What would it be like, guys, to write a story where the world gets saved by a Dominican teenager who grows up in the sort of sexual, racial, class economy where the last thing that she should do is save this world. You know? In other words, like if I, when I was 15, if I suddenly was asked to save this world, I will promise you from the bottom of my heart, I would have been like, I would have watched it die and laughed. <laughs> because I grew up with such a class anger, with such a rage, you know? So what happens to the person if the person that we abuse and hate the most ends up being the person that can possibly save us? So we'll see. Let's see, Athena Wellesley. 
No, no, she doesn't get to college. She doesn't get to college. But she does get to knock people's heads off. Yeah. Yes. Question over there. On the floor. Good, we're almost done, almost done. Hi, I'm Caitlin Greenhill Caldera, and I was interested in the, what you brought up about identifying, defining, and how today in society we're, we're, oh, we're going to be in a largely Latino U.S. and what that means and how Latinos themselves identify and define other um, Latinos and that type of relationship and your views on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a really good question, an incredibly complicated question. And so it's not that as if I have authoritative authority on it. You got to remember, my experience is so limited. It's East Coast. It's a certain kind of generation. It's, you know, it's, well, it's, I'm a boy. I come from a certain kind of, the kind of working poor, you know, illegal immigration on half, legal on the other half. There's all this specificity, which is kind of going to constrain my views or sort of the, the kind of, uh, the kind of, epistemic viewpoint I bring, but certainly there's a couple of things that are occurring right now, yeah? We're certainly seeing that the Latino community is quote unquote, the largest person of color community in the United States, yeah? But second of all, this is all happening at, during a full scale assault on Latinos, a full scale disenfranchisement at many, many different levels and a full scale assault at political identities. What's fascinating is people think that they don't have political identities because of choice, which is like comedy. Like, <laughs> political identities are in part foisted on us, you guys. Yeah? And so, for example, the fact that Latinos' voice articulate this thing where, oh, well, there's not really this concept of one Latino-ness. This is sort of a strange thing, a strange concept, because we've never even actually had the opportunity to consider it. My thing is, it's like, if, for example, all the Latino community in the United States had access to ethnic studies classes, where they could actually begin to consider, is this a viable project? But we foreclose the discussion without any education or exploration and assume that that says something. The Latino community is increasing in presence at the same time as there's a full-scale assault on ethnic studies, on cultural studies, at every level. Political identities and racial identities are under enormous amount of pressure. I can't think of a worse time in the modern period where people are afraid to discuss or describe white supremacy. Yeah? I mean, white supremacy doesn't exist mentally. The average person could go through their entire four years of college and never utter the word white supremacy or even understand how it functions, that you can graduate from a university and have no concept about white supremacy and coloniality, says everything about the kinds of conversations that are being foreclosed. And so my thing is certainly the Latino community um, is going to play a, an important role in the future as it's played an important role in the United States to date. But what I'm interested in as someone who comes from a more radical project, a more progressive project, is putting back on the table all the stuff that white supremacy and the sort of conservative movements have been trying to force off the table. You know, the kind of critical identities, the kind of historical and political awareness that comes to us when we have the kind of sort of deliberations and the kind of reflections, the kind of trainings that ethnic studies classes, when done right, do best. 
Yeah? And the fact that we don't have any public space for this. I mean, it's kind of insane. And so my thing is that, my thing is, is that certainly we can have any kinds of future. The future I fear is one that sort of comes straight out of the present we have now, where we're utterly deracinated, where the enemies of US Latinos have no problems victimizing us as a collective but we are voluntarily unwilling to fight back as a collective. Think about the madness. Think about that. Think about if African Americans in the United States lacked a political identity that allowed them to imagine that their diverse, stupendous diversity is one. So that all this anti-black shit that happens in this country could happen, but African Americans could never imagine themselves as a polity to fight back. That's where Latinos are. And many of our scholars and many of our artists and many of our own people go hand in hand with keeping this shit going. Do you think that um, this also it contributes to the fact that as Latinos were many different ra racial identities and the fact that um, the fact that we don't we can't check just one box? But Americans can't check one box. These are, I guess, but my, we're being forced to in today's world. I guess my thing is that all of these are imagined communities, but we seem to tolerate some imaginative, some imagined communities and not others. In other words, like there's plenty of collective identities, you guys, where people just use them strategically. For me, I guess my thing is, is that we have a lot of reservations without having spent the time to consider alternatives. I'm like, last time I checked, the Dominican Republic is as diverse as any Latino community in the world, and yet Dominicans have no problem saying, we're fucking Dominicans. We might be like, you might not be Dominican. <laughs> and my thing is, it's not that national identities are not dangerous, but that they can serve very important strategic functions, and that US Latinos seem unwilling and resistant, doesn't speak to some sort of essential profundity that we're like, no, we're too complicated for those. We don't seem to be complicated for a whole bunch of other simplistic identities. This has to do with the way that the Latino community has been shaped by forces like white supremacy, which has been denying its ability in our own historical trajectory as well. There will become a time, I promise you, when a generation of Latinos is not going to be listening to these bullshit formulas and is going to be saying, you can attack us as one and we can fight back as one. And you already see it happening. And it's the younger generation that's doing it. And I think it's the older generation and many other folks who have a paucity of the imagination. Thank you so much. Hmm. I think we have time for like two more and then we're done. Madame? Hi. Um, I've noticed a, quite a bit of science, science fiction and fantasy illusions in your work. Um, how does that play into your writing in general? Like, what is your role in nerd culture, as you would say? My role in nerd culture. In nerd, nerd culture. <laughs> well, I mean, I haven't invented anything, so I don't have like, you know. But I mean, listen. My ideas around nerd culture come from sort of my interest and my studies. First of all, A, I'm like someone from a really nerdy background, yeah? I like love all that nerdy shit. 
I grew up in it. Yeah, I grew up with it. I was fascinated by it. But also, guys, I'm kind of like a big-time studier. I'm kind of a big-time student of coloniality. And one of the things that I became very aware of is that much of what we call the conventions of science fiction and fantasy and horror come out of the deep structures of coloniality. And so that you can't begin to understand, really understand science fiction without approaching coloniality. And strangely enough, because of the way that our sort of sense of the world, of our epistemologies, and even the way we kind of make knowledge up, you know, and the way we sort of think about our essential beings, um, there's a lot of stuff about us that we can't think. You know, if you, if you think about our local cultures, local cultures come built in with blind spots. For example, U.S. culture is not good about thinking about genocide. I mean, it's no accident that the very crime that makes the culture possible, the culture has that blind spot. The Western culture is not good about thinking about chattel slavery, the enslavement of African bodies. It's actually not good at it. It's an enormous blind spot. There's all these things that the culture has blind spots, and yet when you approach some of these through the codes of certain kinds of conventions, science fiction has no problems talking about slavery. Science fiction has no problem talking about dictatorship. Science fiction has no problem talking about the breeding of people. But it does it completely broken off from its, the political roots that give this meaning. In other words, sort of, um, when I think of genre, genre is acting out the sort of social, political, historical unconscious of our civilization. And that I use science fiction to unlock sort of the experience of being an African diasporic person, and I use an African diasporic, you know, my sort of African diasporic identity to unlock what science fiction is really talking about. When in Dune, we have a million year breeding experiment. Well, gee whiz, where is the only time in human history where we've longitudinally bred people? But we don't like to think about it. Does the United States imagine itself as one of its core practices, the breeding of human beings? And yet, one of the most popular marginal textual practices has that as one of its power cords. And do we think this is an accident? And so for me, there's both the fan, I'm just kind of nerdy about this shit, but for me, I think that science, in science fiction, in this, what we call the sub-zeitgeist of science fiction, of genre, of comic books, of fantasy, lies the real history of who we are. And for those of us who come up in this world, for those of us from the Caribbean, folks of color, women, yeah, the ways that we need language to describe our experience, we often have to go to texts that are describing extreme realities because realism cannot describe us. There's no way you can be a woman, a person of color, and use realistic 
language to fully describe yourself. Realistic language is especially organized to leave important parts of you out. Does that make any sense? Okay, last question, then we're done. Was that? Oh, that's it. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, so uh, I'm just curious to know when you write, uh, do you actually write with your hand or do you type? And the reason why I ask is uh, I'm from India and computers came relatively late to me. So I grew up uh, like writing everything and I enjoyed the process. I looked at the handwriting, the free flow and everything. But now we have technology and especially for people in creative field. Uh, I was wondering, just curious. About yeah, thank you. Definitely, I, I write a lot by hand. I kind of move out a box. I kind of move out a box of handwritten stuff every year. My handwriting is utterly unintelligible, even to me. <laughs> you know, for real. Like, I will look back at anything for two months ago, and I cannot understand a word. You know, but um, I enjoy both the artifact and the practice of that, of actually putting pen to paper. There's something very comforting. It also, though, um, for me... It works at the proper speed. You know, guys, one of the things about writing fast often means that you're not going to hover the way that you hover when you have to write by pen. And now, does it mean, of course, always? No. Plenty of people who type and go in deep. But I think for me, I kind of guarantee that I won't get lazy and skip the dark, deep parts by sort of writing very slowly. Yeah? And so both mechanically I write slowly and just sort of as, a, as an ethic I write very slowly. Yeah? And then I just write slowly because I suck too. <laughs> no, but I mean it's important because, you know, it's just important. It's not everything doesn't just match up to our ethics. You know, it's just, I also just happen to suck too, so is that you know but it's it's strange right because sometimes i have memories of things that i wrote with my hand and i have very few memories of anything that i've typed are you a slow reader oh no <laughs> when i get on with reading um for example right now i'm on what i mean by this is that i i read like hundreds of pages a day and my memory is amazing. And I'm the guy who doesn't remember anything. My girl always has to like remind me five times of the same thing. She's like, you promised Michelle Oshima we'd go to dinner today. You promised Michelle Oshima we'd go to dinner today. You promised Michelle Oshima we'd go to dinner today. And I'll be like, what's fucking for dinner today, you know? <laughs> so when I'm on fast reading, tons of retention, but especially what matters, the important retention. Because this is something as I've gotten older, it's like, Guys, it matters how you remember things. And I know when my, the things I'm reading are going into the right place because it's firing up all these sorts of connections. And again, I, I tell a lot of my students, especially because so many young students have been forced, and we'll leave it with this, so many young students have been forced with the sort of commodification and the corporatization of higher education, they have been forced to professionalize artistic practices. You don't know how many of my students want to be writers, but they don't want to be artists. It's just filling in the place of, a, of 
the pressure that they feel to have a professional identity. And one of the things that ends up happening with professional identities is that professional identities are problematic, and this is why we fucking are doing our students such a disservice, because most of our students feel like if they don't study something that's gonna lead to profession, that it sucks. Well, you don't remember well when you think the thing that you're remembering has a purpose. Like, you remember best, strangely, when you're playing. And there is no playing when you've already decided that the thing that you're practicing has a purpose. The least playful people I've ever met are undergraduate people who've identified themselves as artists. <laughs> Because they've already decided that this thing has a purpose. This thing needs to do something. And there is no play. Telos denies play. Telos evacuates play. You know? And I think that one of the things about sort of being a playful reader is that you will remember immensely. Which is why when you're reading for purpose, you don't remember shit at all. <laughs> You know, and I would argue, and I'll leave you with this, I always say this, but it bears repetition, I always say this, I always say that if you're interested in being an artist, you don't really need to practice it while you're an undergraduate. Yeah? Like at all. You know, unless it is what we call a high skill art. For example, ballet, guess what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but most people damage their instrument as undergraduates because of the pressure they put on themselves for this thing that should be play to fulfill a professional function. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.